Victoria, the Joyce Hatto scandal of 2007 <laughs> impacted on the music industry in all kinds of ways. But I suppose it was a scandal, if you like, for the digital age. Technology made it possible, yes. was also its undoing. You really couldn't make it up. And I, I suppose when you were writing this excellent screenplay, loving Miss Hatto, there must have been moments when you thought, well... I am making this up because it is so extraordinary. What first of all caught your imagination? Where did you start when you, you sat down to think? Because I know you did an enormous amount of research. and we... I did a huge amount of research, most of which I couldn't really pack into the story in the end, but I needed to do it for my own benefit. I needed to have that background in order to be able to take off with a flight of fancy. I suppose the thing that attracted me first to the story, which is the story of, of Joyce Hatto, who was a concert pianist, who had many, many recordings out at the time of her death, which were all been glowingly reviewed. And she had a big following all over the world on, online. When she died, it was revealed that none or very few of those recordings were actually by her. Yeah. They'd been taken from other pianists. So I was attracted to the sort of oddness of it. It was the clash between a seemingly respectable elderly couple living in Hertfordshire <laughs> in a close <laughs> and... And the, the internet and the fact that, that whatever they had done was expedited by the fact that you could, you could sell things online and that you could have a presence online. You didn't have to have a physical presence, yes. which, which is quite a new, a new thing. sense great kindred spirits because in a real sense this is a love story it's um, totally a love story and uh, it's I mean, a story that's... of a codependent relationship yeah absolutely and and she needed to hear from him what she never got from from her own family and particularly a yes. mother yes. who you've portrayed as, as disapproving uh, at least and discouraging yeah i mean in the end after flirting with many many different versions some of which were very sort of very high tech and all about people all around the world loving Miss Hatto. In the end, I sort of had to discard all that, and in the end, it became it became a story really of their relationship, and almost as a sideline of their relationship, they perpetrated this fraud, which mm. brought them to public attention. But the real heart of it was what did they want from the other? Yes. What did each want from the other, and what did they deliver? And I decided that perhaps. That she wanted something from him. She wanted affirmation. She wanted. The, the, I think he perhaps promised her that he could give her a good career in that very difficult world of, of being solo concert pianist. And, and perhaps she and she did the same for him. Perhaps her admiration for him was a boost. And and together they sort of took off <laughs> like a rocket and eventually <laughs> crashed to the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's a touch of the Macbeths about it, but in reverse. Yes, in a, he in wanted a greatness way. for her, didn't he? Did. He, he wanted. He wanted her to be a huge success, but he perhaps pinned more on her than she could than she could carry. Absolutely, Possibly. because that's my imagining. Well, no, I I think you're you're spot on because I think and I, this is about many things, but I think one of the things it's about is what constitutes greatness yes. as yes. a musician, as an yes. artist. Yes. And you know, she didn't have that temperament that makes the great, no. and she was lacking that something. You have to have that something that drives you on, no matter what. And when we know every year, every year, very, very, very good pianists are coming out of mm. every music college every single year. And only a few can ever rise to the top and become names that we know. Yeah. 
and, and, and perhaps in the 50s it was even harder. I sort of imagine her going around chilly church halls and having having no real outlet, there not being that big boom in CDs and recordings that we had, you know, 30 years later. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of, particularly women, I think, would have done it for a few years and then and given up and, and become, you know, very good teachers. Well, that's... But I that's... think that's perhaps what she couldn't couldn't quite settle for. Yes, I suppose that the difference between the technician and the artist mm. is always at the heart of it. You actually go a little bit further, and I don't know whether this was conjecture on your part, of, of showing her as having distinct breakdowns mm. in the middle of performances mm. where her nerve just gives mm. out. Mm. Did that come from any particular source? It or? came from one piece of research where somebody, a music critic, had seen her play and had seen her collapse at the keyboard. And he was very dubious to whether it was a genuine collapse. But whether it was a genuine collapse or not, she did stop playing. So she was unable to play either because she was ill or because she just her, her nerve failed her. Yes. So I, t- I t- did take that incident yeah. and put it in in a version in my script. Her, well, her only serious recording, inverted commas, was yes. of the Bach Symphonic yes. Variations with yes. Vernon Hanley. Yes. Um, and by all accounts from people one speaks to, she was a useful pianist yes. and she could do something like that. But essentially, that's the kind of piece that collectors and anoraks out yes. there yes. are going to say, oh, wow, this is, she's amazing. Yes. What else is there? Yes. And yes. That, that is where it all started. Well, that's it? what I've done. To be kind to her, I've used her genuine recording as a thing that sparked off the interest, but actually it wasn't. It wasn't one of her recordings at all that, 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 that sparked Jeremy Nicholas's ear in the first place when he, when he was reviewing her in Gramophone. It was somebody else's. But because I'm trying to, I'm trying to be so non-judgmental to them, I've made it her own genuine recording of the Bax Variations that somebody hears and, and thinks is wonderful. Yeah. Barrington Coop, the Walter Mitty character, um, <laughs> insists to this day that Joyce knew nothing about this fraud, that it yeah. was a loving act on yes. behalf of her husband, knowing she was dying of cancer, yes. and he just wanted a legacy for her to be remembered by. Yes. Um, how do we know that she was complicit in some way, or do we? Well, I think I do. I mean, I'm not sure whether this would stand up in a court of law, but I have seen a note that she wrote to somebody talking about a particular recording, a recording that she never made, or there's no physical evidence of her ever making. So it's a fraudulent recording, and she talks in this note to somebody about how, how she's worked on it. If you don't know anything about any fraud, why would you refer to a recording which you've never made? And if you have made it, where is it? Yes. So I, I'm, I cannot imagine that she didn't know about it, because I think it went on for quite some years. And I think because it went on for a few years and because she was being she was being interviewed about these recordings, well, there's the one extant recording where she's talking to someone on New Zealand radio. She's talking about some of these recordings which subsequently proved to be fraudulent. I think she absolutely must have known. Otherwise, she would have said, what on earth do you mean? <laughs> no, I don't remember. Yes. I don't remember doing that recording of the Prokofiev. She must have known. Yeah. I mean, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense as a story, anyway. For, yes. To a writer, it doesn't make any sense unless, unless they were doing it together. And, and hopefully that, having a bit of fun out of it. And there's that little bit of delusion as well, because she began to think of them, probably, that they were I think you'd have to. I, I was trying to work out, because you have to sort of try and... T- to understand the psychology of people, and we're all capable of doing 
dishonest things. So I was trying to think, well, if that was me and I had done that, I would have to believe on some level that I'd really recorded them and that in some other world, if I'd not been ill, if I had a different temperament, if I'd practised more, I would have been able to make those recordings and that life had been unfair to me and it owed me something and so practically, they were practically mine. And yes. so I they could then go on the radio yes. and talk to you about them and say, yes, of course, when I go in the studio to do this, that and the other, I'm very well prepared. <laughs> but I'd have, I'd have to come to that accommodation with of myself. Course. Um, my allegiances kept switching mm. during the piece. Good. You know, the, <laughs> there were moments when I just thought, "This is all him. This is a la- this is an act of love." Yeah. And then I thought, "Well, she must know what's going." And they, they talk a lot about patching, don't they? There's yes. that thing about because yes. we know that there are recordings out there, mm. real serious recordings mm. that have been remastered from yes. the past, where yes. they've had to drop in mm. the odd note yes. because it just wasn't audible or mm. viable. Yeah. Um, but this, of course, and that's, their, that's their justification for yes. taking wholesale recording. That is, that's his story to the bitter end: is that that, that he only ever patched up her recordings yeah. with little bits from other people. And of course, he actually enhanced as well. So there, there was evidence of stretching. He sped, he sped so they could up. slow the tempi down to yeah, sound yeah, more and, like and her. Speed them up. I mean, she's playing. She in inverted commas is playing um, the Godofsky variations, which are really, really difficult, and two hands doing impossible things in, in different directions. And they're incredibly fast. And, and, and actually, one of the recordings they're taken from is Marc-André Hamelin. Oh, and yeah. when he, he heard them, he didn't know it was him, because they were, <laughs> they were so different from his original version. They were faster <laughs> yeah. than anybody could play. <laughs> yes. moments which are, again a writer's license I would imagine little touches like when she says oh we're sort of Hertfordshire Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> and, and I mean it lightens what is a very heavy piece in many ways yes, because it is heartrending. you're talking about a woman who is dying yes and, and, and you're talking about two people whose well life with most of us life bashes you about and that's what's happened to them they start off with high hopes and and they have to, they come to some accommodation with themselves, and then right at the end they think, no, actually we're going to we're going to grab something for our lives. Yes, and there were what something like a hundred recordings. I think it's about one hundred and twenty. It's absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the chilling moment of revelation where the American journalist puts mm. it into his yeah. computer, into yeah. iTunes, and out comes the readout. Yeah. Which of course Barrington Coop just. It, it technology was that kind of technology was in its infancy he probably it's just something he wouldn't have thought of he felt very let down by them because he felt that he'd befriended them he championed them in the gramophone magazine when people were saying we think there's something odd about this how come you know she's made more cds than Ashkenazi and she's 75 and dying of cancer oh is there a problem and he's going no 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 show me the evidence i, be- I believe in them because i've spoken to them and then you know, the whole thing collapsed like a pack of cards very, very quickly from the moment of somebody putting it into iTunes and gramophone doing waveform um, analysis on them. It's extraordinary what we're prepared to believe, though, because but people I'm... wanted to believe it. It was such a good story. Yes. She was, you know, she, we don't have that many brilliant English concert yeah. cleaners. She was, she was English. She was a woman. She was elderly. She was in a dignified battle against a long, long illness. You know, what was there not to like? Everybody wanted that story to But I suppose, but it was the sheer volume, the fact that how on earth could this woman be making so many studio recordings and us not know about them? Yes, that's right. And then 
And whenever, whenever anybody said, "Well, where did you do that recording?" and he'd be very vague, so, you know, it was some church which then subsequently would turn out to be bombed or, you know, taken over as a carpet warehouse with a completely you know, fictitious but, conductor. Yes, was, yes, absolutely, yeah. Rene Cola. One needs to talk about the victims, doesn't mm. one, yes, Victoria? Yes, because, you, you know, whose work was stolen. It's very cavalier, really, to just take them. But I, I would imagine that was the last thing on their mind. They were, they were focusing, Joyce and Barry were thinking about Joyce only. They weren't thinking about the hurt feelings of yeah. somebody who'd worked on the, you know, the Godofsky variations for ten years and then had them nicked. <laughs> you'd, and you'd... I suppose in the, in, the, in the pantheon of crimes, it's probably... You know, a fairly mild thing to have your recording borrowed, and probably not not very many copies sold. I imagine it's not you're not really lifelong damaging Vladimir Ashkenazi by that. No, and I suppose some of them will have laughed it off and just sort of said, "Well, it is so preposterous the whole thing." The greatest sadness, I suppose, of all, and one that you beautifully uh, find a way of dramatizing in the film through two little girls she taught, Mm. was the fact she always preached honesty mm, and truth music. in music making and mm. it was all about the music mm. um, now how does a writer l- like you come across that kind of device to to make I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of it I really am I think <laughs> well it... I did meet I met a lot of ladies that she had taught that when she taught at a private school in the early 60s and I met probably about I had lunch about five of them and they absolutely adored her and they were all very shocked when they read in the paper of this fraud and this scandal so I, I took that really as one of my drivers in the in the story and that's why I called it loving Miss Hatto it's not it's not just her husband who loves her it's all these other people who've been who've invested in her and, and what they think is her view of music Yes, it's terribly touching. It's also very touching that at the point where he thinks they're going to find out, yes. he steps in very quickly and says, Joyce knew nothing about this. Well, he's, he's sort of got a decision to make. It's, he's lost everything. He's going, to tell, he's going to tell the truth to the papers. And then these girls, who he has barely seen since they were children, turn up on the doorstep, because they, they were at the funeral. They turn up on the doorstep and they, they just want to know that, that, that she didn't know anything about it. And he's in a rather bitter state. I suppose he, he's blaming Joyce, everything's gone wrong, and he's been left to carry the can. And then they have brought him a record, they bring him a recording of her from the early 60s that they took on a little tape recorder. And when he hears her voice, he sort of it sort of reconnects him with the real Joyce mm-hmm. and the real love. And then he's he's able to protect her mm. to them and say no that she didn't know anything. And then they they can go away happy. It's an extraordinarily powerful relationship, as you say. Codependency mm. is it's a better description, but it is strong. It's stronger than mm-hmm. most people's yes, marriages and, yeah. and and bonds because yeah. they absolutely needed each other. Um, and I think that comes across really powerfully in the, in the film. And having seen them as younger people mm, and yes. then as older people, yeah. that was that a decision that came easily to you to show both? I can't. I think in the early draft, I didn't have the younger people, but then in the end, I thought, no, I have to 
I have to show who they might have been yeah. if they hadn't met, because this is all about that accident of meeting that sets you on a particular trajectory. And that, that's the point of a codependent relationship, is that mm. it, it makes you behave in a way that you wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise behave. a lot Victoria and you write comedy as well as drama I mean I think it's wonderful that you write drama so effectively but then the two are very close aren't they real life tragedy and comedy are all the same it's all the same thing really you just sort of point it in a different direction is writing what you love to do most do you think Um, I mean you've done a bit of everything I've done a bit of everything it it is always based in the writing first it's the telling the story and then I suppose the more fun part is sort of organising it into a, a production and I really like producing I really like directing as well but it usually starts with something that I've written mm. do you have a kind of layout <laughs> chart because all the components have to come together mm, I do it all on filing cards do you yeah oh, I lay them all on my carpet that's... to tell the to tell the story and it seemed to be such a complicated story when they met when they were young when they were older who found out who knew what when and I thought, oh, God, you know, it's not the born conspiracy. <laughs> you know, it could be, it needs actually, it is simple. It's about two people. You know, you can feed in the other bits of the story as you go along, but really it's about two, two people's marriage. That's, that's the, and, and sometimes you have to do a complicated thing to get back to a simple thing. Yeah, yeah, the casting is, is really spot on. And um, Francesca, who is such a beautiful I know, woman. she's gorgeous. Um, being this sort of rather dowdy sort Absolutely. of Absolutely, I mean, I wasting all away. credit to Francesca because most glamorous girls in their 60s would not particularly want to play somebody in their 70s. They'd be much more likely to want to play somebody in their 50s. And Francesca is very, very youthful looking. She has a fantastic head of hair. She's a fantastic figure. She had no problem at all in popping on a dull old tweed skirt and some thick tights and an old cardi and, and, a, and a wispy wig. I mean, she really took it and ran with it. And then Alfred Molina, he's only... You know, he's about 58, so he had to age up as well. And he's got very, very black hair, very black eyebrows. So he had to have his eyebrows bleached and then dyed, which just looked rather extraordinary. And his head shaved. He looked quite terrifying, actually, until he put his, you know, and he had to have a wig on as, as Barry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he, it was his pleasure to watch them work because they're both such professional, thoughtful people. Yeah, well, meaty roles are few and far between, and, and yeah. particularly for women. And Yes, uh, I was, think they were, they were good roles for, for the, well, for the four of them, actually. Yeah. Were. You grab them with both hands, don't you? you're musical and you're a musician to an extent (laughs) yes and you you uh, I mean we know uh, we know the songs you write and you've written a musical and you've written scores and such like Um, did you have that kind of 
background of you know we're both from Lancashire actually and we you know I had piano lessons and and I had parents who you know would rarely give praise <laughs> it's it's a, it's an institution in that part of the world isn't it yeah <laughs> did you have that sort of experience well, when you were growing up or, um well or I was very much, very much left to my own devices as a child we had a we had a beautiful uh grand piano my father played and and, and wrote songs and things but his way of teaching me the piano, I was we had the music of Polly Wolly Doodle up on the piano. He came in and wrote the names of the notes on the, the words Polly Wolly Doodle, and then he wrote the names of the notes on the piano in pencil. He then left the room, and that was it. And that was how I taught myself to play the piano. That's and I did take that and run with way. it. So, so I mean, they didn't, you know, I wasn't pressured at all to play or not play. I adored playing. What do you love to listen to? I mean, um, you know, what, what, it doesn't have to be classical, by the no, way. But I, no, I mean, no, no, I listen, all, all kinds I suppose, listen, at the moment I've been listening to Bach cantatas, I've been listening to those a lot the last couple of years, because they take a lot of, a lot of listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, I love choral music, my daughter was a choral scholar at Cambridge, so I've been listening to lots and lots of choral music since she's been doing that. And I love jazz. Louis Armstrong. I love old, old jazz. Thirties jazz, twenties jazz. Dance well, Bach bands, was, swing bands. Bach was the the original jazzer, really. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. was extraordinary. The governor yeah, in everything. He's a genius. Yeah, I love I love um, brass music. I was in a military band when I was a kid. So, um, loving Miss Hatter goes out when? In, oh, do we know yet? No, I'll be the last to know. Um, <laughs> hopefully, within the next, you know, before Christmas. I'm hoping. Well, it's a it's a wonderful piece. Um, are there any other dramas of this ilk in the pipeline at the moment? <laughs> well, not or? of not of this ilk, but I did a, a musical for the Manchester International Festival, the summer before last, which is about a children's choir, which I'm hoping to adapt for television and shoots next year. It's about the Manchester Children's Choir singing um, Nymphs and Shepherds. Um, I was just finally just th- reflecting on you know the sad story of Joyce Hatto, but mm-hmm. realizing that. By the time this drama goes out, and mm. and and that in a sense she will have achieved <laughs> enormous really. notoriety. Well, yeah, because you know, I, I, of all the people I know, very few had heard of her or heard of her story. So it's, it is giving her another sort of lease of life. It isn't just a critical thing. I mean, I, I've tried to empathise with them because I don't think I don't think I have the right to stand in judgment and also what they did it wasn't so bad I don't think so bad. Mm-hmm.